thing we have to fear is fear itself, fear itself. From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. This is Digital Campus, episode 111, recorded February 20th, 2015, The Next Big Thing. Hello everyone out there in Podcast Nation, this is the long-awaited return of Digital Campus, um, which is still alive, despite reports to the contrary. Um, We are now at uh, podcast number 111. Um, straight up ones all the way across. And we are um, joined today by only three of the usual crew of five. Um, so there's me, Amanda French, um, uh, currently unaffiliated, uh, formerly that camp coordinator at the Center for History and New Media. Um, we are uh, joined by Stephen Robertson, the director of the Center for History and New Media. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Amanda. And also by Mills Kelly. Mills, what is your current title? Um, I am George Mason's Presidential Fellow, which means I'm working directly with the President of the University on a variety of projects, and, uh, and of course, a faculty member in the History Department. Right. Um, Mills and Stephen, I'll, I'll just begin with a little, little chat before we get into talking about uh, our, our lineup of digital stories today. Are either of you currently doing any kind of... Uh, in-depth research or writing that you'd like to tell us about? I am. I'm, I'm actually trying to figure out how to aggregate a whole bunch of research um, on one very small place. And um, it's Nicholson Hollow, which is a, um, a hollow in, in what's now Shenandoah National Park, which when, um, when the park was created back in the 1930s, there were about a little over 100 people who lived there. And the Commonwealth of Virginia and its infinite wisdom expelled them from their homes, giving them, quote, unquote, fair market value for their property, which was not really anything like fair market value, uh, to make way for the park. And um, it's I'm trying to figure out how to do a digital humanities project in a place with no electricity and no cell signal and sort of you know, dependent on whatever the battery life of the devices I bring with me up there, because it's about a four and a half mile uphill hike from the parking lot that you, the closest place you can get. So I'm trying to work on that a little bit and figure it out. At the moment, it's a little cold to be up there and a little snowy, so I'm not going this weekend, but, um, so that's what I'm working on. Always interesting to hear about. Uh, Stephen? Um, actually, I'm up to my neck in Civil War soldiers at the moment. Um, I'm teaching my undergraduate digital history class where for the second time we're using records from um, Blenheim House, a historic Civil War house 
here in Fairfax, which is covered in graffiti by soldiers, um, by Union soldiers during the Civil War. And the staff mm. down there have identified, deciphered the signatures of about 122 of those soldiers and gathered all of their service records and pension records. Um, and a couple of years ago, when I, just after I first got down there, I was visiting there with my daughter and, and heard about these records and, and, and the fact that the, the staff there hadn't really worked out what they were going to be able to do with them. And they were generous enough to share them with my students and I so we've been using them as the raw material for digital history projects and and this week we've been putting together a proposal to send to NEH to run a summer workshop for K-12 teachers basically replicating that same process going and exploring the graffiti in the graffiti houses and researching the individual soldiers and following them up to Gettysburg so for someone who really is a 20th century historian I've been I've been up to my neck in trying to understand the civil war from the perspectives of these individuals which does I think um, you know warm my social historian's heart to be down at the level of the individual soldier um, and the graffiti is a really interesting kind of source um, you know in some ways it's writing just like the letters and diaries that we're familiar with civil war soldiers leaving but it's done in an interestingly different context um, it's signatures and, and regiments but it's also drawings of all sorts um, and when they did it they really did it full scale so they covered these buildings sort of floor to ceiling in graffiti um, and just trying to work out what this is about and and use it as a way into individual lives has been a, a really interesting project. You know what I love about this, you know, inexcusable divergence from the topic of our podcast is that it reminds me and hopefully everybody else that uh, digital humanities really is humanities at heart. You know, uh, there's uh, a little bit of digital stuff going on here, but it's mainly all about. It starts at the same place that a lot of analog humanities starts. You know, with interesting uh, sites and data and. Uh, archives and things. I'm actually doing a, a good bit of work on Edna St. Vincent Millay's personal library myself. I've had some time to, to work on that and it's been a lot of fun just writing about the books that Edna St. Vincent Millay, the poet, owned and, uh, you know, some of which are expected and some of which are unexpected. So that's been a lot of fun. And I think it's a lot of fun that, that, that what the digital adds to those traditional humanities projects, because this is really about about getting all of the all of the three things we've just talked about out into the world and in front of different kinds of audiences, and, and playing with what we can do with that core humanities content in a in a different kind of medium. Oh, absolutely! You know, yeah, I, I've built an online catalog for this, and I'm you know currently working with the metadata and analyzing, and I've just begun, I've just started like putting it into conversation with other poets. Uh, personal libraries and other writers' personal libraries, and uh, yeah, I, I go around saying all the time, digital humanities is public humanities, which uh, may or may not be true, but sounds good anyway. All right, so on to the uh, explicit topic of our podcast, which is um, how digital technologies are affecting um, universities, libraries, museums, and other cultural memory institutions. Um, so we uh, have gotten quite a late start with the podcast for this year. So even though it's uh, February 20th today, I thought we might hear uh, a little bit of a report back from the major academic conferences, um, notably the American Historical Association, um, which of course happened in early January. So Stephen or Mills, would either one of you like to tell us about uh, particularly the digital sessions at AHA? Stephen, I'll let you go first because I think you attended more than I did. Yeah, well, I mean, and there were an awful lot to attend. I mean, I think that that 
Dan used to sort of count them up and, and, and rate what was going on. There was there was simply too much to go to at, at this year's AHA, which is which is great from a, from a lot of point of view. So I went to a lot of digital sessions, but missed out also on a lot that I would have liked to been at. And I, th- I think that's, again, a, a really interesting development, that kind of expansion. And and there were a lot of, of more thematically orientated sessions there, which I think was interesting. There was one that I didn't get to on Digital Histories of Slavery. There was one that I did get to on um, using the digital for feminist history um, that's bringing in a lot of people other than other than the usual suspects. Um, I chaired a, a, a session on digital publishing and open access that was put together by some folk at the Wellcome Institute, which was a, a really interesting um, discussion as well. So I think the scale is is one of the things that struck me that there, there, you know, there is much more. You know, there's not a digital track anymore. There are several kind of digital tracks, and those sessions are diversifying. The other thing that you know from this distance still really sticks in my mind is the continuing strength of the um, sessions on digital teaching and pedagogy, um, which were one of the things that that really struck me about the previous year's AHA and and was there again. I think and in um, this year's AHA and and the conversations I think in those sessions expanded further so so both of the sessions that I was in where there were significant conversations about teaching online teaching came up um, in ways that it hadn't in in the previous years and I and I think that there's there's a, an interesting conversation beginning to take place between people who from from digital humanities who've been thinking about teaching the digital and people who've been teaching online not necessarily digital content um, in the past. Um, I also went to a really interesting session about the MOOC on um, reconstruction, Civil War and Reconstruction that Stephanie McCurry taught at um, the University of Pennsylvania which was a where she was very explicit about the gap between what was going on in, in that class and what would go on in a and would need to go on in a four credit class which I think again I think put another sort of spin on on what I think is a necessary conversation about about the connection between digital humanities teaching and and teaching in various kinds of online um, environments that I that I'd really like to see continue to happen I think there was some really interesting um, interventions in the conversation by the people who've been involved in teaching online for a long time and that's obviously at the top of my head here because we're developing three online digital humanities courses at the moment here at the Centre for Mason. So I, that's, I, you know, the strength of those sessions I think is is, is something I find really exciting and, and, the, and the spread of that conversation um, to bring in extra groups is really interesting to me. Mm. What did you uh, attend, Mills? You said you didn't attend much, but... Yeah, I was actually only there. I was there on limited funding, so I was there for only about 36 hours, I think, mm. but just two nights. But um, the uh, I also went to some of the sessions on uh, digital humanities and pedagogy, um, which I guess will be no surprise to anybody who knows what I've been working on lately, last 15 years. But, um, like you know, like Stephen... Um, I'm really interested in how, and Amanda, this is something that you've, I know, brought up in the podcast many times in the past, but I'm increasingly focusing on it finally, Um, and that is, what is it that people in the digital humanities really have to say to the people who are teaching online and have been teaching online courses for a long time, and because often there's not a lot of imaginative thinking about online instruction, it's like, let's 
let's record some lectures and have students watch those, and that counts yeah. as innovative digital um, instruction, which, of course, it's not. It's just taking a failed pedagogy and making it more accessible. Uh, and so, um, so I, you know, I think we're starting to try to have those conversations, and, and I think it's going to be really rich um, because, for sure, colleges and universities all around the country and around the world are going to be spending more money year, every year on figuring out ways to deliver course content in distance mode. Um, you know, I've been looking at that a lot lately, and, and one of the things everybody's learned, I think, to their surprise, because they thought MOOCs were going to generate, you know, this gigantic enrollment benefit for them, and really it turns out that the market for online instruction is your current students. <laughs> Right. They they want to take your online courses because that makes their scheduling more convenient for them, or they can speed up their path to the degree or whatever. So most most institutions, with a few exceptions like Arizona State and Southern New Hampshire and a couple of others, have local online markets, which is not what they expected at all. And um, so anyway, I think that there's some really some interesting stuff starting to happen there. But the part from the AHA that excited me the most was the kvetching that I heard. And the kvetching that I heard was not from the digital humanities people or the digital history people. Um, it was from the people who do, quote unquote, analog um, history, the old way. And, and I heard several people say things like, what is it with all these digital panels? I mean, when are we going to what's happened to the regular panels? We don't seem to have anything anymore. And, and if we all just take a moment and think back. Well, like to the beginning of this podcast, the, the people who showed up at the AHA to talk about digital history or digital humanities, we were like this little cabal who managed to wedge a couple of panels into the program, sometimes through being an affiliated society or something like that. And that was about the only way we could break through the program committee. And now the worm has turned. <laughs> and, 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 um, so, you know, I, I took that as a really positive development. I think, you know, maybe, maybe the New York meeting was a little too digital. Um, probably not. Um, but, uh, maybe. And so I just think that that's really exciting. Yeah. So I did not go to the MLA, uh, the Modern Language Association this year. It's actually the first time in a long time that I, that I haven't gone, but I will report on uh, a little thing that was announced at the MLA. Uh, which is a little bit related to um, uh, digital technologies. Um, so last summer, I uh, served as a contracted grant writer for the MLA on a grant proposal to the Mellon Foundation, which was, of course, invited because that's what the Mellon Foundation does. Um, and we wound up calling it um, Alternative Academics. And so this was a big... Uh, uh, award to the Mellon Foundation or to to the MLA and to three partner universities, Georgetown. Well, organizations: um, Arizona State University, Georgetown University, and UCHRI, which is the University of California Humanities Research Initiative, to basically transform doctoral programs and career support for graduate students to help prepare better prepare students for alternative careers other than the increasingly non-existent tenure-track teaching jobs. So one aspect of that is, of course, preparing people to go into uh, digital work, you know, whether it's you know, project management or working at um, you know, museums or foundations or nonprofit organizations, um, 
even uh, there's also a big aspect of that that grant that has to do with just preparing people for other teaching careers, really um, putting an emphasis back on teaching and saying one of the skills that people come out of graduate school with very often um, is teaching, you know, and can they go into other teaching careers besides adjuncting. So that was announced at MLA, and I was uh, I was actually really proud. I think that's a really, really interesting initiative, um, and uh, I'll be uh, keeping a close eye on that um, as that goes forward. One of the things that they're doing, uh, the MLA is going to put together a pro-seminar in New York City where they take um, graduate students in languages and literature programs around New York City, of course, which of course there are many, from Fordham, from NYU, from CUNY, from Columbia, and take them around and just show them the different kinds of institutions. So, I mean, universities and colleges, you know, come in so many different flavors and shapes, and I think that often, even at the graduate level, people don't really realize that. So they'll, you know, if you're at Columbia, you may not understand, like, everything that goes on at an enormous urban commuter institution like CUNY, uh, but also to all the many um, foundations like Mellon itself and uh, the New York Public Library and other places like that um, around New York City. Um, so that'll be really interesting. The MLA is actually sort of running a funded class for uh, graduate students in language and literature, which I think will be fun. Um, so anyway, uh, that was one of my uh, main things that I was interested to see come out of MLA. But I think uh, there were also a great many digital sessions, as there always are at MLA. Um, I don't know if there were more than usual this year, uh, but certainly there were enough to, uh, to make a big dent. And uh, certainly the MLA for me in past years has become the place where I go to catch up with a lot of people who are doing digital work in my field. Um, and it, there isn't even, even, you know, the ADHO, the Association of Digital Humanities Organizations meetings are often just kind of inaccessible to me. Um, you know, they, they have them in Europe or Australia in alternate years. Um, and, uh, you know, in order to serve the people who are members from those regions. Um, so I don't get to go to that nearly as often as MLA. So I did miss catching up with my people this year, but uh, we'll try to go again next year. And that does remind me, actually, Amanda, of an MLA AHA tie-in tie that, that is probably worth mentioning. One of the things that I did at AHA that wasn't directly conference-related was be part of a working group um, to discuss drafts of the AHA's long-awaited tenure and promotion guidelines for digital scholarship. Um, right. And here the AHA really is, is very much kind of uh, some steps behind MLA. Um, you know, the AHA is, is certainly taking, you know, a very deliberate approach to, to putting out these standards. And, 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 and it was a fairly lively session, I have to say, discussing um, the shape that they were going to take. Um, and interestingly, you know, I think one of the challenges that of those standards is catering to the incredible diversity of institutions that potentially will use them um, going forward and 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 the the wide variances and tenure processes across a lot of those inst, um, institutions but one of the things that 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 in that context that did come up from MLA was the news that they are in fact going to do a follow-up study to see what uses have been made of the standards that they created several years ago. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that really will answer some very interesting questions about just what the impact of these these are going to be and, and, and how they are in fact working in practice. So it's going to be probably the next AHA before the standards for historians are out there, but hopefully as those have been developed, we're going to learn more from MLA about what actually has happened to the standards that they created uh, ahead of time. And I think, you know, I think it, it, it's... 
you know, I think a, a positive thing that, that the, the major scholarly associations are, are creating these standards in, in some kind of conversation. Um, the art historians are doing this as well, you know, at, at a similar kind of time. And I think that that will all help given that tenure decisions are, you know, are made beyond disciplinary levels. Um, mm-hmm. and, and making sense of them at that level is, of digital scholarship at that level is, is really the challenge um, beyond even what happens within departments. Do you happen to, Stephen? Do you happen to know if um, those discussions have extended beyond the tenuring decision to then the promotion decision, sort of from associate to full? Because I think a number of people end up doing digital projects as a second project rather than as a first project, and um, and and the way the departments look at promotion to from associate professor to full professor is often quite different from the way they look at it from assistant to associate professor. No, it's interesting. I mean, these standards are, are intended to be for both, but the, the yeah, but that distinction wasn't one of the things that this working party actually spent a lot of time discussing. Um, I mean, really, uh, the major issue that came up was just how specific the standards could or should be. Um, you know, the, the the draft I have to say was very very general, and I was certainly one of the people pushing for something slightly more specific. But you know, there were a lot of people arguing for the for the limits of doing that. So so in terms of really distinguishing between um, tenure and promotion, that wasn't something we talked about. Though I'm sure it's, you know it's one of the things that the that the actual committee that's working on this has probably got in front of them. So. Um, so no, it's the it's the fight going up for tenure that seemed to be at the forefront of people's concerns. Um, I want to. I just remembered that I uh, I misspoke. <laughs> I was uh, saying that this project that the MLA has been funded um, by Mellon is was called Alternative Academics, and it's not. It's called Connected Academics. <laughs> so I just wanted to make uh, make that little correction while I'm while I'm thinking about it. Because um, Altac, of course, is a really um, widely used term, and there's a lot of benefit actually in um, switching the conversation from Altac to a different kind of academic. So, sorry, just a just a self correction. Um, all right, well, let's move on to um, things that are actually in the news. Um, we were all quite interested in this report that uh, Stanford University Press has been awarded 1.2 million dollars by, of course, the Mellon Foundation. Um, to uh, help support publishing this, these new forms of digital scholarship, um, specifically visualization, specifically interactive scholarly works. Um, Stephen, do you think that this kind of um, initiative will have an impact on the AHA's guidelines or on the work that scholars are doing in history? I mean, it certainly would, you know, it, it takes it closer to traditional um, publishing standards, so it would certainly make it easier. I mean, one of the big concerns for any of digital scholarship standards is who's going to assess digital scholarship given a sense that that there's unlikely to be local people who can do it. And so anything that replicates the kind of peer review we're used to for monographs will make that easier. I mean, I find this, of the various initiatives that that have been announced over the last few months to try and do something to address monograph publishing, I I find this one the most at least intriguing or interesting. I mean, it's... It's an effort to step beyond the monograph to recognise some kind, a kind of scholarly work that is not fundamentally about a monograph. Um, you know, and, and and it's it's no real surprise to me, I guess, that that the Stanford's partner in this is the Digital Scholarship Lab at, at Richmond, um, where Ed Ayers is president. Ed has been. Um, 
outspoken about his, his sense that we haven't made the progress that we should have over the last few years in, in finding ways to produce scholarship that isn't still bound to the book in some way or another. So right. so this this strikes me as something that really has that possibility, the, pro, the prototype project that they describe in the launch, um, Nicholas's Borches Enchanting the Desert, which looks at photog- photographing the Grand Canyon, looks exa- you know exactly the kind of project that that wouldn't work between the covers of a book and, and is going to raise other kinds of issues. So so insofar as this actually really does encourage the creation of ways to produce some truly digital scholarship, I, I think it, it would help anybody who wants to assess that scholarship to have a press doing the, the kind of work that presses do with monographs for doing it. But I also think you know it will really encourage people to pursue other kinds of projects. I mean, the only thing that really concerns me or at least confuses me about this is exactly uh, there's a line in this about about developing a cost basis for publishing digital objects and 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 the kind of access that that exists for these projects is 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 a little opaque in this grant um whether this is going to be by some sort of subscription or licensing enclosed which would seem to some ways be at the antithesis of scholarship or if it's going to be open access exactly how the press imagines recovering costs that go into it because they describe a you know an impressively developed kind of support for this publishing which is is not going to come cheap so so there i would be curious to learn a little bit more about what the cost basis actually is and 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 how they imagine distributing or providing access to this versus paying the costs of it but and that's obviously not a small question but I think we're well overdue to actually have somebody take up the challenge of of actually making it possible for people to develop interactive scholarship, and 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 I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of this. And you know, and for me, the real issue in all of this is interactive, mm-hmm. because I I hope that they will stick to their guns on this and insist that this is a project about interactive scholarship, as opposed to what we've largely called digital scholarship over the years, which is a tiny fraction of which is actually interactive. And mostly it's digitizing things and text images or whatever and making them available. And for scholarship, that's often, um, you know, a digital book, which, okay, it's not, it's not, it's a digitized book often. And so, so I really hope that they will stick to their guns on focusing on things that are interactive because that's where, as you know, as Ed Ayers and Will Thomas found a long time ago um, with the Valley of Shadow project, it's really hard for scholars who are so used to the world of the book and the article and the, the linear text to, to wrap their minds around how to evaluate and how to make sense of things which are not that and and have some sort of an interactive component and so so that's the reason i'm excited about this project is because i think it has the potential if they stick to their guns to really move the move the needle on interactive scholarly work and how we figure out what to do with it yeah, I think uh, I think it's important that this project is affiliated with a university press because I think that you know that will help people understand. Some people have already always said, you know, well, the university press is the, you know, 
the the job of evaluating scholarship has been outsourced too often to the university press, particularly when it comes to monograph length things. Um, you know, why doesn't the university itself, um, you know, instead of just saying, oh, this was published by OUP, therefore it's good, um, you know, do a, a sort of a more in-depth evaluation. But so, yeah, so people can see, oh, this is published by Stanford University Press, and that can be, you know, and if they're aware that Stanford University Press is, you know, has a rigorous peer review method of some kind that will help make, you know, processes of promotion and tenure more efficient and things like that. But yeah, there have been other attempts to uh, do this kind of review of digital work. Um, and uh, so the Nines Project is a big one in mainly literary studies, although also history, but it's, it's a bit confined to uh, work that deals with the long 19th century which, of course, you know, a great deal of digital work does deal with the light, long 19th century because that work is out of copyright and, you know, the primary sources are out of get peer review, but it's not real of them. So Nines is one place where you can really affiliate it, you know, officially with a university press. So it can be a little, well, you know, what is this, what is this group that is, you know, doing the peer review? I think um, DH Commons, uh, which is a project that was uh, founded by Ryan Cordell up at Northeastern, they have recently founded a journal which is interesting, and my sense is that they are actually also trying to do peer review of digital projects, digital humanities projects, but that has just begun, and again, they don't have the sort of existing cachet that a university press does. So um, I agree with both of you. I think it's a really interesting and good initiative. I think Ed Ayers, who of course is uh, one of the main players on a competing podcast of a sort, the very popular and professionally produced backstory. Um, we'll have more time to give to this now that he's uh, stepping down from the presidency of the University of Richmond and going back to being a sort of rank-and-file faculty member. So he'll, uh, he'll probably be a, a, a bigger player in digital humanities than he's had the time to be recently. Uh, and I think I, I would note one other kind of interesting thing about this, and that, that's that Stanford University Press is a library-based press. And so right. know, one of the th other things that this project is, is addressing is, is the sort of the, the sustainability and preservation of of um, of these new interactive projects. And, and, and having library-based presses, of which there are now an, a number, I think offers some really interesting possibilities for digital publishing because of that tie-in to the to preservation and 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 sustainability, which are, are going to kind of be challenges for this going forward. That you know, commercial presses or presses on other kinds of models or foundations might raise different questions about a library based and the connections to the library. I think are an interesting foundation for that. Yeah, and there there are several other presses that are on that model, notably NYU Press. Yeah. And uh, University of Michigan Press, I yeah. think, but I don't know of others. But uh, but they have uh, both of those have been presses that are very open to digital work. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and I and I think that just to echo Stephen's point about sustainability, I think uh, I think who knows what anybody else thinks, but I think that digital humanities ten years from now is going to be almost entirely library based for that simple reason of sustainability because. Still, almost nobody is willing to fund sustainability of the projects that people are creating, and the libraries are the the obvious place for that to be sustained. And you know, we we've been talking about this for years, but I think it's just something that we need to, as digital humanists, need to start focusing more on and how we build positive relationships with the libraries because um, they're where we're going to be in ten years. Interesting. Yeah. 
So uh, I wanted to move on to uh, one other uh, somewhat related uh, funded project. Um, in the middle of January, the National Endowment for the Humanities announced a sort of an unprecedented partnership with the Mellon Foundation, which is, of course, a uh, private foundation as opposed to a government foundation uh, funding agency. And they uh, announced this uh, Humanities Open Book Project, which in some ways it's not about um, current scholarship, but about past scholarship and is very much an open access initiative. So as I understand this initiative, um, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Andrew Mellon Foundation are partnering up to essentially release the analog bonds of uh, books that ha are out of print um, but still in copyright. Um, and their goal is to turn these into freely accessible ebooks. So it's not new model scholarship, it's not current scholarship, it's, uh, you know, simply great books of the humanities uh, published in the last, you know, 80 years or so that uh, just are not available electronically, which is how many people prefer to have them these days. Uh, thoughts about this program? Oh, I'm so happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you want your books to be digitized, don't you, Mills? I don't know if you'll uh, be able to nominate. Well, one of them is. One of them is. But oh. uh, but the you know it's really um, in, in so in my field, East Central European studies, there are so many books that were in such limited press runs that are so good and and so almost entirely unavailable, and and so to have them, um, you know. They're not going to focus on my field alone, but just I could already. I, I, as soon as I heard about this, I could think of ten books that are just almost impossible to come by, but they're still they're still in copyright, and you know, so you have to interlibrary loan them, and that's fine. But most undergraduate students working on a on a paper for me this semester aren't going to go to the trouble of inter planning ahead and getting the interlibrary loan and waiting for a few days. They want the more sort of just-in-time delivery, and so simply having things more accessible that way is going to uh, make it possible for my students to make better use of these kinds of resources. Yeah, I think this is great. The application deadline is June 10th, Mills, so you've got until then, I guess, to uh, give them a list of books that you want to see unlocked. Um, one of the things I think is interesting about this program, too, is it's, it's based on a similar program uh, run by a great guy named Eric Hellman, uh, which is called Glue Jar, which, again, is the notion that um, when things are in copyright, you can pay to have them licensed, essentially, for electronic distribution. And so Glue Jar is a place you can go and, uh, you know, nominate your, in, you know, a, per a particular in-copyright book that you want to see available in digital form. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll do some funding and so on and uh, try to make sure that that gets released electronically. Uh, but, Stephen, do you have any uh, ideas for books that are in print that you think could... Uh, um, Benefit from being converted into EPUB ebooks. Well, I mean, I think yeah. I mean, I think all of us have ideas of books that are harder to get to. I mean, it's not just bringing them back, but bringing them back as as ebooks, as digital texts. You know, that are, that are Creative Commons licensed. I think is is you know is the key part about this. They're not only going to be available, but they're going to be available on a form that we can increasingly do extra things with. Um, and 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 you know. The recognition from both Mellon and NEH that, that you know, of the two prongs of that, of, of returning to accessibility and returning it in, in digital form, that both of those things have value, I think, is is, is really important. And, uh, and that's another kind of, 
I guess, incentive to get people to consider the additional things they can do with a digital text over uh, over a print text and and consider bringing those things into their classrooms and into their research with with these texts. So I, I'm going to be very curious to see what you know what the list of books actually turns out to be. I mean, this is a you know an initiative directed kind of at publishers primarily, um, and but. But yeah, I think everybody's got got a list if called on. Well, actually, that's what I was wondering, actually, because I was thinking, uh, I, I was sort of hoping that the MLA might itself get involved in this because the MLA is a publisher of quite a number of things, including approaches to teaching XYZ, approaches to teaching Don Quixote or whatever. And um, I think some of those books, you know, of course the MLA, um, you know, so some of those books are available electronically, but I don't know, uh, I, I would suspect that uh, a great deal of the sort of 20th century backlist of Books that the MLA itself has published is not available in ebook form. So, I don't, is the same thing true of the AHA? Is the AHA a significant publisher of books that might that they might submit to this program? No, no. Okay. Well, I guess that's one way in which we literary scholars are just more advanced than you are. One hundred and twenty-seven <laughs> ways. <laughs> well, I will say, Mills. You know, the AHA was ahead of the MLA in terms of um, beginning to track the alternative career paths of um, you know doctoral holders in in history and beginning to, to reform its program so I would say you're you're at least a year or two ahead of the MLA on that and so. and boy does the AHA get props for that too I'm really proud of them for that yeah it's it's really fascinating I mean all of that data about where people actually go in their careers um, once the tenure track jobs dry up which which they do Okay, well, um, I don't want to keep everybody too long, uh, but Mills, you had uh, expressed some interest in talking a little bit about uh, the Internet of Things and uh, wearable computing, and uh, the uh, there was an article uh, quite recently, a, a couple of things saying that uh, you know TechCrunch reported that wearable computing is no longer the hot thing that it used to be. Um, you had some things you uh, wanted to say about that. Yeah. I, you know, I'm. I continue to be interested in um, the Internet of Things, and which wearable computing is just sort of one small corner of. Um, and largely, that interest was spawned by Bill Turkel up at Western in Ontario, and um, through the, his work on the Lab for Humanistic Fabrication, and which, you know, Bill is always about five years ahead of me, maybe seven, <laughs> in, in his thinking about these kinds of things, but. I keep thinking it's sort of like cold fusion, you know. It's the it is and always will be the energy source of the future. Um, I keep thinking that that wearable computing or the Internet of Things is somehow going to be the next big thing in 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 teaching and learning, at least that corner of digital humanities. And and for all of my thinking about it, I'm still pretty stumped. Um, and um, so I, I my wheels spin and nothing actually ever pops out of the machine. But um, the uh, you know, it's and the reason it's puzzling to me is because in, in on the industry side of things digital, billions and billions of dollars are being poured into research and development on things that we call the Internet of Things, whether it's, you know, smart thermostats that, that learn your preferences or whatever it might be. And, and uh, we're, we just haven't really figured out, I think, ways to bring the humanities alive to students, especially younger students, maybe K-12 students, through these kinds of devices. Um, 
we still relied on putting things on a screen and you know we're still too enamored of the the laptop the desktop the tablet the phone and i i just you know these the the articles that were in TechCrunch and elsewhere were actually starting to, you know, throw a little cold water on the Internet of Things or wearable computing. But, but I still think that there's something to be said out there um, by people like Bill. And I'm just going to put it all on him because he's well, better at this than me. But it, go ahead. To me, it, it has well, it has to do with um, you know maybe the the slowness with which our pedagogical models change. So like immediately what I can see, like, say that, you know, wearable computing was, you know, even more widespread than it already is. I know a bunch of people who have Fitbits and stuff like that. I mean, one of the things that wearable, com- or Google Glass, right, which of course has sort of sunsetted, right. but um, the, uh, what, what those, what that does for you is enable you to, to collect data. So what I can imagine doing in a class is, you know, sending your students out in the world to collect data of various kinds and then bringing that back to the classroom to analyze them as a class, you know, analyze one another's data, you know, analyze, you know, other data. And that, again, is not really, that's a kind of pedagogy that's familiar to me because of having been sort of immersed in digital humanities types of thinking, but I think it's not one that is that matches really well with traditional models of teaching in which I am the, um, you know, authority and you are the, the empty vessel to be filled with my knowledge. But even what, you know, what Stephen was describing doing with his students in the graffiti, you know, that could easily be, um, you know, matched with a wearable computing kind of data collection model for the students. So. Yeah, I mean, just this project that I'm working on in Nicholson Hollow, which so there were 100 people living there in, in the 1930s, and now nobody lives there, and the trees have all grown up where the farms and the houses used to be. And so to find the, you know, the archaeological sites that are the remnant of this, this group of people who lived there, you know, they and their, their ancestors lived there for more than 100 years. Um, and then, of course, there was old Native American heritage before them. Um, you have to really tromp through the woods. And so GoPros could be that data collection device. And... Um, and, and to, to really start thinking about, you know, the, the experience of doing the historical research, because in a place like Nicholson Hollow, it's not just going in and looking at things, you know, or, to, you know, to take Stephen's example, you know, so he can, he can take his students down into downtown Fairfax and go to Blenheim House and, and look at the graffiti. If I take my students up to Nicholson Hollow you know, they better be wearing their hiking boots and their gaiters and, 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 uh, you know, have a stick to poke at copperheads that might be under a rock that they're trying to step over. And so, so, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a whole different kind of data gathering experience because it's truly, these are, you know, their paths that go and, and through, and then other places where you just see the old track of what probably was a road at some point, and it's now all grown up. And so you just have to go stumping off into the woods and um, and that's a different kind of historical research than we're used to working with in the classroom. And so I think your example is a really good one. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm, I'm still struggling, I think, to, to, to get over the gaps to see that. I mean, I still see, I, 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 mean, I, I still think we haven't, we haven't grappled with what, for example, 3D printing means to making you know a lot of humanity subjects literally more material and and i guess a similar way that wearable wearable computing might be i mean i mean a lot of these examples that we're coming up with are about place and about the 
about the, the the capacity to gather information about places um and i you know and it could very well be that you know visiting certain kinds of even built historical sites like blenheim house i can potentially maybe imagine wearable computing that would allow the students to record information about about space and and place and somehow alongside those things but but i think yeah i i do take mills's first point about getting us kind of off the screens and into some other kind of relationship with um what we want the students to study as as kind of the the next possible way we're going you know thing we're going to have to grapple with in the classrooms is is you know hands-on at the moment tends to be hands-on keyboards and 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 there are <laughs> there are obviously you know much more potentially powerful you know dimensions of hands-on that that we, that we still have have to um capture and, and consider yeah so anyway, I still think it's the next big thing, but I have no idea how. <laughs> It'll be the next big thing for quite a while to come. Mm. All right. Well, uh, thank you both for joining us. Um, uh, and uh, I suppose next time on Digital Campus, we'll talk about what the next big thing is at that point. <laughs> so uh, thanks to all of you. Uh, everybody keep warm, and we'll see you next time on Digital Campus. Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Thank <laughs> you.